Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out WrightFarmHouseChurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. So many of us grew up as, as children in, in Christian households, and, and we, uh, I think we started realizing what right and wrong was um, when we were younger. We almost, we almost always were trying to, to, I think when we were younger, we were almost always trying to do the right thing, right? At least I was. <laughs> uh, and, and, and when we were younger, and we, uh, we identify, I think, what is right and wrong, not because of an abstract moral compass. We've talked about moral compasses in some of my lessons recently, but um, we don't identify what is right and wrong because of an abstract moral compass that somehow evo- that we evolved with. But we we know that our morality uh, is gifted to us from the God of the universe, the the God of Jesus Christ, and that we have a firm foundation in naturally knowing right or wrong because of the moral compass that we all have, whether, whether we believe, whether people believe in God or not. And as children, right here, as children trying, and children over here, uh, trying to do the right thing, we often found ourselves, at least I did as a child, we found ourselves messing up. And, and we were doing the wrong thing. So, so we thought to ourselves, or I thought to myself, you know what, I'll do better once I gain a little bit more understanding and I become a teenager, I'll do better then, right? Uh, but then we still found ourselves doing the wrong thing sometimes. So, so we thought, you know what? I thought, I'll get my act together when I go to college. I bet I'll figure it out then, right? And, and, uh, or when I'm college age, if you don't go to college, which we're not, that's a different t- subject, sorry. Uh, but then, uh, but then the cycle, right? The cycle continues, and and we say, "I'll get my act together when I get my first professional job," or, "or I'll get my act together when I meet a wonderful Christian spouse," uh, or "I'll I'll get my act together maybe when I get married, or when I buy my first house," and so on and so on and so on it goes. And I've been shocked. I did a little research. I've been shocked to find out that there are a lot of parents, even in the in the Christian community that encourage their children to go off to college and party, party hard, right? The, the, the philosophy handed down to us, in this, especially in this past century, this uh, past half century, has been that we, ha- we all have a little crazy left in us. We all have just a little crazy in us left at, uh, at that age. So we, we just need to get it out before real life starts, Right? And the philosophy that we've been tricked by the devil through modern cultural mediums is that our most virtuous days, they always lie ahead of us. We're not quite there yet. They always lie ahead of us, even when we're older. But if you think about it even for a minute, think about that even for just a minute, we can realize what a bizarre assumption this is because nobody builds great structures on crumbling foundations. The, the genuine pressures of adult life, uh, paying bills, a stressful job, a, a challenging marriage, or, or kids that you're raising, um, those pressures don't often lead to virtue. The, more often they tend to lead to, 
to what I would think is compromise as we let those stress pre- pressures get to us. And we might, up, we might end up mastering the art of putting on faces and looking better than we actually are. And, and this is one reason I abhor. I just abhor, and I'll say it straight up, any kind of ungodly social media like Facebook or Twitter, <laughs> etc. Because we can get sucked into posting these fake lives and, and, and these, fake, these fake faces. Age, as we age, age has the power to corrupt us. Um, and this is especially the case if we have worldly success. If we have money or prestige or influence or power, the, the Hebrew Bible is really sober um, about this reality. There's, there's actually multiple stories of kings, and we're reading about them right here. If you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, we read about multiple kings who start off really well, but they end up making small little compromises. They, they, these tiny little fractures in the moral foundation that eventually develops into these massive canyons of immorality. So in 2 Samuel chapter 5, the entire nation of Israel anoints David as their king. We're there now. They've anointed David as their king. All the remaining contenders, if you read chapters 3 and 4, all the remaining contenders for Saul's throne are dead. Uh, and the northern tribe, the, the northernmost tribe, they see this that sees they see this as this pretty precarious position uh, without a king to reunite them. So in response to this is this this huge momentous occasion. David moves, he moves his capital. He conquers Jerusalem and and then he he calls Jerusalem what? He calls it the city of David. if If you read that. This is this is actually, if you think about it, this is actually a very astute political maneuver. By relocating his headquarters to Jerusalem, he's actually moving the center of his power just north of Judah. And this communicates to all the people, I'm not just, the, that, I'm not just Judah's king anymore. Okay, Now I'm the king of all Israel. That's what he's doing here by moving his capital to Jerusalem. Establishing a new city allows them to to get out from underneath the the thumb of Judah's tribal leadership and and at the same time get out from underneath Israel's thumb as well. So Jerusalem becomes the city of David, the city where David's his whole all of his interests now reign in Jerusalem. So Smack in the middle of these stories about uh, all of these stories about conquest, we read three short verses that on the surface, I think they sound mundane and they sound unimportant, and you might have kind of skipped over them, not thought about too much about them. It's almost as if nothing is happening here in these verses, but something that's really significant is happening. These three little verses, they show fractures in the morality, like we earlier like we early, earlier mentioned, they show these tiny little moments where David is, is making, these, he's making these tiny little compromises that over time, as he ages, are going to become canyons of immor- immorality. 
these compromises, they will not only end up swallowing David, they will swallow, in the long run, they're going to end up swallowing his own children and his son Solomon. Okay, so let's read them here. 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 11, it says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. So, before we go on, let's note here something, something here about the cedar and the stones the masons built with, okay? These are some of the nicest things that you could build a house with in those days. Uh, these are signs and symbols of incredible wealth. Let's just note that real quick. Going on in verse 12, it says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. So let's talk about each of these two short verses. In the first story, we read, we read David's financial arrangements with Hiram, the king of Tyre. He's hiring Hiram to help him build a palace. And this marks David's first experience into the politics of capital and wealth. Okay, This is the first time we read about this with David. Uh, and, and I want to read something here in Deuteronomy that gives warning to what David was starting to do. Deuteronomy 17, starting in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14, says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So the book of Deuteronomy actually warns against kings accumulating a lot, a lot of wealth, a lot of these things. And while David, he doesn't explicitly break any of these of those commands here, uh, we know that his son Solomon will. Um, in fact, his son, his son Solomon is not, not just going to break the commands of Deuteronomy, but he will do it, interestingly, he will do it precisely under the tutelage of Hiram, the king that David is, is now hiring to help him build his palace. So, and, and, and David is making these deals with Hiram right now. So interestingly, in the future, Hiram will push Solomon into breaking these things that Deuteronomy says not for kings to do. So, we should ask the question, I think, why? Why does, why does Deuteronomy warn against accumulating wealth? Well, it's, it's because of the temptation to trust money instead of God. The temptation to, to see what, what you have and, and to think to yourself, Well, I'm pretty smart. You know, I've got all this figured out. Uh, I've done a pretty good job. I can, I can really manage my whole life. And we stop trusting in the God who gave us everything. And we stop trusting in God for our, just our practical needs altogether because we have wealth and because we think we know, we know what's best. And, and, and we know how to do things. Alright, so in the second story, in the second verse... We see David dealing in the politics of wives, concubines, and sexual exploit exploitation. 
And in the ancient world, kings made treaties via marriage. Uh, the trading away of women was just, it was just good politics in those days. But it still stood in direct opposition to God's express will. It, it, Israelite kings were not supposed to collect wives. They weren't supposed to sexually exploit women. Instead of trusting the politics of exploitation, they, they were supposed to trust Yahweh. Uh, and to be the one who can protect them. So in these short verses, in, in these short verses, we see we see two tiny little fractures crack open in David's life. And, and as David ages, the pressures of life they press these these tiny little fractures into massive canyons that are not only going to swallow David up, they will also swallow up his sons. They'll swallow up his children. And we see it in the life of, of David when he sexually exploits Bathsheba. We see it in the life of Solomon when he creates a, a harem of over 900 women. Money and exploitation. Small fractures, small little compromises at first. And not much has, to, has changed today, has it? Sex and money are still the great powers corrupting good men and corrupting good women. How many people have created a harem for themselves of thousands of people through internet pornography? How many people have sacrificed their families on the altar of money? How many of us have given up on trusting in God for the real kind of practical things that we need in life because instead we decided to trust in the, two, in the twin gods of power, mammon and Aphrodite? Money and sexual exploitation. And it's a little ironic, I think, that our currency reads, In God We Trust. We all know the truth, don't we? We, we trust in money to keep us safe. We trust in perversions to keep us happy. We trust in both to give us a feeling of control and power in our lives. So, so often, the choice to rely on those things starts with these small choices, though, right? And these little compromises with greed and with lust. So the question is, what compromises have we made or are in danger of making? Are, are there small fractures forming in our lives right now? Have we made peace? Have we made peace with the sins of power and sexual immorality? Have, have we compromised and made peace with greed and, and consumerism? Jesus said here, in Luke 16, 13, Jesus said we can't serve both God and money. Jesus came to set us free from serving money and from serving our lusts. He came to heal the fractures that have started in our lives before they become full-blown canyons leading to death. Jesus has provided a way out. Um, before he, He's provided a way out before these, these small compromises in our life really eat us alive. And here's the amazing thing, okay? Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. No matter how bad it is, it's never too late. It's never too late. Even if you think that that canyon has opened up and that's already swallowed us alive, it hasn't. Jesus can still rescue us. Jesus can still forgive us. Jesus died to take the full penalty of our sins. Every last one of them. Every last one of our sins. And, and for those of us who have 
put on Jesus in, in baptism, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1, no condemnation already. Jesus rose again to give you a new life. Romans 6, verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's great news. We talked about how humanity always thinks we'll do better later in life. That's what humanity wants us to think. As Christians, we have got to stop believing that. We need to stop telling ourselves that we're going to get it right later. We'll get it right later. Christians are living this new life now. This is when we're living it, not later. Future Christians have that same hope too. Perfection in Jesus Christ, it's already here. But as Christians, let's remain vigilant in order to realize when we have compromised and stop those actions before, before we get swallowed up by the devil's grasp. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.